1 John chapter 2, just the first two verses this morning. So let me read those for us. So here we are, a little ways into John's letter to the church in Asia Minor. And he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. This morning, we're going to be talking about sin. Essentially, we're going to be discussing what our practical theology should be when it comes to sin. How should we think about it and how should we react to it and how should we approach what we think about sin? There's a quote from John Green's book, The Fault in Our Stars, and he's talking about the city of Amsterdam. And he says, some tourists think Amsterdam is a city of sin, but in truth, it's a city of freedom. And in freedom, most people find sin. So the point that he's making when he writes that is that he's, he's essentially saying, all right, when, when people are experiencing too much freedom, somebody comes in and squelches it. Someone comes in and relabels it so that freedom is considered sin. Meaning and underlying that is this assumption that what people call sin is arbitrary, that there is no definiteness to it. It's arbitrary. Uh, and I disagree with him about that. God's word disagrees with him about that, but I also understand on some level where he's coming from. Because I did a Google search this week as I was reflecting on this. Uh, I just Googled reason not to sin, just to see what would come back. And so the eighth result was an article titled, Biblical Reasons Not to Get a Tattoo. (laughs) I think maybe we're on to why John Green feels the way that he feels. He says, well, what's with this arbitrariness? Listen to the just opening lines of this article, Biblical Reasons Not to Get a Tattoo. By the way, getting a tattoo, I think it's an issue of personal conscience. We're not actually going to discuss it this morning. So don't wait for that. The The author says this, a few decades ago, tattoos were sinful in Christianity. Now as we get closer to the coming of the Antichrist and more and more celebrities are getting tattoos all over their bodies, Christians want to follow. So... tattoos amongst Christians means the Antichrist is almost here. That's the equation that we see in this article, which is evidence of why John Green feels like areas of freedom are just being labeled sin. So sin must be arbitrary. If I'm doing something because I feel free and you come in and take it from me, it's because you don't want me to enjoy freedom. And the reality is all too often because of our legalistic tendencies, we do step in and start becoming arbitrary instead of living with freedom. But then a knee-jerk reaction to that is to say, well, then if sin is arbitrary, then sin's not nearly the big deal that people are making it out to be. And so uh, we need a theology of sin. We need to have a practical theology of sin because what we believe about sin matters. John Stott wrote this. He said, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. We have to understand that Jesus needed to come and die because of our sin. And when we start to understand that, we will begin to love the gospel all the more and understand why Jesus came and what it teaches us and what it shows us and what it brings to us. But if we don't think that our sin's a big deal, then we're going to be minimizing the beauty and the loveliness, the joy that's ours because of the gospel. And so we need to talk about and think about and understand sin because it helps us understand the gospel. And so as we look at these two verses this morning, I want us to do two things. I want us to talk about remembering the gospel so that we won't sin, 
but also remembering the gospel when we do sin. Remember the gospel, because that's what, that's what John's calling us to do, is to remember the gospel. I'm writing this to you so that you won't sin. What's he writing to them? He's writing to them about God and how God is light and how if they confess their sins, they can be restored into fellowship with God. He's reminding them of the truths of the gospel. He's writing that to them so they won't sin. But he's also writing it to them so that when they do sin, they'll have hope. Here's a quote I want to read for you from Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was talking about this. And the first thing we're going to consider is that first point. Remember the gospel so you won't sin. He says this. He says, there are two main dangers that always confront us as followers of Jesus. The first is that of complacency, and the other is the exact opposite. It's the danger of hopelessness. What Lloyd-Jones is talking about there, he's looking at this text, and he's seeing how John writes so that we will not become complacent and not think that sin doesn't matter, but also so that in the midst of our sin, we will not be crushed and become hopeless because we're supposed to not sin, and yet we do. And so he's writing to both of those opposite extremes to help us understand that the gospel is the good news that means you are freed not to sin now as a follower of Jesus. But it's also the good news for all of us who are still sinners and still rebel against God. And so first, remember the gospel so you won't sin, so you won't become complacent, that danger of complacency that Lloyd-Jones is talking about. And there's two aspects of this I want us to consider. The first is a question, why does God care if we sin? And the second is a question, why should we care if we sin? If we're being reminded of the gospel so we won't sin, why should we care whether or not we sin? Jesus is such a great savior. His death is so sufficient as we'll talk about in just a little while. Why does it even matter if we sin? And so let's talk about these questions. Why, do, why does God care if we sin? The first thing we're being reminded of here when, when John says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Remember, he's writing and saying that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And if you say that you have fellowship with him, but you walk in the darkness, you lie. That's what he tells them. So he's reminding them, hey, God is light. God is magnificent. God is your king. And when you sin, you are insulting and an affront to your king. God has a kingly relationship with us. He's the creator. He's the king. And when we sin, it is act of rebellion against the king. And we're tempted to think it's not a big deal. Why do we think that sin against the king is not a big deal? I think it's because on some level, subliminally, what's going on inside of us is we think if something is forgivable, it must not be that big of a deal after all. If it were a big deal, it couldn't be forgiven. But by virtue of the fact that it can be forgiven, it must not be as big a deal as, as it gets made out to be. That's kind of the, the thinking that invades the way that we process our sin. If God were really upset with my sin, he wouldn't be able to forgive it. But he's not that upset, and so he's able to forgive it. How ridiculous is this? I heard this story and was reminded of it as, and reread it this week. Story of Corrie Ten Boom when she, when she came back from Holland into Germany after the end of World War II. And Corrie Ten Boom had spent time in a, um, a concentration camp because she had uh, been hiding Jews during the um, Nazi reign. And so she comes back after the war because she would come back into Germany and she would bring messages of forgiveness and love into a hurting nation, a broken nation. And so she tells the story of being there in this room, speaking to this gathering of people, and that's when she sees this man in this overcoat, and suddenly she's reminded he was one of the guards at her concentration camp. And after, the, after she gives her message, he comes up and starts walking towards her. And he comes up and he tells her, and I've, you know, I was a guard at one of those prisons. I don't know if you remember me. He didn't remember her. 
but she remembered him. And he says, I just want you to know I've, I've become a Christian and, and I, would, I want you to forgive me. I'd love your forgiveness. And so then she was, she'd been there to talk about forgiveness and then suddenly she was looking at a man who was complicit in the murder of her own sister who died in that concentration camp and he comes to her asking for forgiveness and she honestly says the struggle that she felt in that moment was can he possibly think that by asking for my forgiveness he somehow is making things right? And then she was convicted and she thought about the love that Jesus has for her and the forgiveness that's been given to her. And so she reached out her hand and she forgave him and she felt the warmth of the Holy Spirit comfort her in that moment of forgiveness. Now, if I tell you that story and say, see, it's not that big a deal to murder somebody's sister. How ridiculous. The point of the story is not that murdering a sister is not a big deal. It's how beautiful and immense is the power of that forgiveness that comes from Jesus. Or here's another example. So two of my boys and I went to Cruise Wild Game Dinner this Monday night, and uh, it was fantastic, and we really enjoyed something called birds, whatever the birds were. We enjoyed the birds. But during this particular evening, they were giving out prizes for various animals that I don't know what they were that had been shot and were different sizes and yada, yada, yada. And during this event, they gave out a prize for like the largest fish. And so this guy was talking about this, I think it was like a 150-pound amberjack that he had caught. And my boys were like, what is that? So we, we pull up on my phone and we look at like a 150-pound amberjack. That is a huge fish. Now, here's the thing. People always take pictures of their huge fish. When you've seen a picture of somebody with, let's say, a 150-pound amberjack, is your initial thought, wow, that guy's small. Or, that's a huge fish. The point is, it's a huge fish. We look at it and we say, all right, that's a normal-sized human being. Look how big that fish is. The same thing applies when we think about our sin and God's forgiveness. It's not to look at God's forgiveness and to say, oh, it must be small because we're sinners. No, it must be large because we're sinners the immensity of his forgiveness. And so when we minimize our sin, we're saying our sin must not matter that much to God because he can forgive it. No, that sin was major. Every sin is major, an infinite cosmic act of treason. And yet God's love and forgiveness of us, for us is so great, so immense, that it takes the punishment of infinite sin for us. Now, as a king, God demands and is due our obedience, our love. But that's not the only thing that we're being reminded of here when it says, I write these things to you so that you won't sin. We don't just not sin because God says not to, though that's reason enough. One of the reasons that, uh, the, that John is giving implicitly here is, I'm writing this so that you won't sin, is a reminder that God wants fellowship with you. That God is not just your king, he's your father. And so when you affront the king, you also slap your father. And so he's reminding us of the fatherly love that God has for us. I love the way that Sally Lloyd-Jones talks about it. And uh, she's, to my knowledge, of not at all related to Martin Lloyd-Jones, though it seems highly irregular. Um, Sally Lloyd-Jones, writes. she wrote the Jesus Storybook Bible, which I'm not sure if you have a copy of that. Usually we think storybook Bibles are for kids. Now the Jesus Storybook Bible is for everyone. And everyone should have a copy. And I'm just going to read two excerpts, one from her chapter about the fall and one about her chapter from the prodigal son. So after Adam and Eve sinned, she says, a terrible pain came into God's heart. His children hadn't just broken the one rule, they had broken God's heart. 
And then when she's talking about the prodigal son, she says, what the prodigal son didn't know was that day after day, his dad had been standing on his porch, straining his eyes, looking into the distance, waiting for his son to come home. He just can't stop loving him. He longs for the sound of his boy's voice. He can't be happy until he gets him back. Jesus told people this story to show them what God is like and to show people what they are like, she writes. We need to understand that it's not just an act of cosmic treason, it is also the breaking of our Father's heart. God cares about our sin because God cares about us. He cares about his own glory and he cares about us. And those two reasons are why God cares about sin. And they're also part of the reason why we should care about sin. God cares about it because he's holy and because he loves us. Why should we care about sin? Why should we care about whether or not we sin? And this proper theology I want us to have, this practical theology of sin, I want us to be able to see sin for what it is. Because when you see sin for what it is, it helps you understand why we should care. So I want us to look at three things. I want us to see what sin is, what it does, and what it requires for our practical theology of sin. See what it is, what it does, and what it requires. First and quickly, what it is, it's cosmic treason against God and a slap in our Father's face. What it is is rebellion against the one who loves us and rightfully rules over us. It's rebellion. That's what it is. But second, what it does, what sin does. I'm going to quote Lloyd-Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones, again for you here. He says, sin will rob you of happiness, it will rob you of joy, and will give you a sense of condemnation, and it will lead you to doubts. It will at times make you feel uncertain of your relationship with God. Sin always leads to a sense of utter hopelessness. So what does sin do? It wrecks things. It wrecks us. It wrecks our life. It dismantles the joy, the happiness, the security of our life, even as followers of God. doesn't sever our relationship with him if we're followers of Jesus. We are children of our Father, but it can sever fellowship. But ultimately, sin is what has established that severed relationship from the beginning. So for some of us in this room, what our sin is doing is it's estranging us from our father. For others of us in this room, sin is why we do not have him as our father. And so we have to respond to our sin in one of two ways. Well, actually the same way. We cry out and we run to Jesus for the first time or we run again. But if you have a relationship with Jesus, know that your sin doesn't destroy the relationship, but it does estrange you. If you have no relationship with Jesus, it's your sin that has to be dealt with. And so when we think of of sin as something that wrecks our lives, that sounds all well and good when it's sort of ethereal and it's up here. And yeah, sin wrecks my life. Let's talk about how it really wrecks our lives. Because John wants to write to us so that we won't sin, so that we will see the error of our ways, so that we'll see the natural conclusion that our life and our choices are bringing us to and we'll repent as we talked about last week that we'll confess and turn from our sin let's use a couple of examples one example pornography how does pornography wreck our lives the reality is that pornography has been on the rise in the life of men and women for years and years and years now every year it's just more and more prevalent more and more prevalent and so how does it wreck our lives How is it that this particular sin can destroy us? Well, it wrecks our view of women. It wrecks our view of men. It reinforces lies that say that humans are commodities for me, for pleasure, for self 
pleasure. And so every man, if you're a, ma- a man, every other man is competition. And if you're a woman, you're to be assessed as to whether or not you're a prize worth pursuing. And not in the beautiful, I love my wife kind of prize, but in the self-serving, satisfying commodity. Are you something that I want or that I discard? It wrecks the way we think about humans, other humans, which means it wrecks our relationship with people. When, you have, when you're struggling with pornography and you're viewing pornography, it affects your ability to be vulnerable with other people, which means it affects the depth of relationship that you can have with someone else, whether it's a same-sex friend or an opposite-sex individual. You cannot be truly transparent and with that person because you have to hide something in your life from that person, and therefore you cannot have the kind of relationship, the fellowship that you're designed to have. It wrecks every relationship. Now, as we think about other uh, aspects of what it does, when, if it affects your view of women, it affects your view of men, it affects all of your relationships, it affects the way you view sex. It's the way that you process sex now is, is through the lens of pornography as opposed to the lens of union that points to Jesus and fellowship and trust and beauty. Everything is wrecked. And then last but not least, there's more we could say, but the last thing I'll say is it enslaves you. All sin makes us slaves and enslaves us. Through the hiding, but not just the hiding. The hiding enslaves us, but also the way that it captures our mind and our attention and our downtime and it uses our finances and it uses every resource that we have. Sin will take those resources. And pornography is no exception. But that's not the only one. What about gossip? Gossip's another sin. Gossip affects the way that I view other people. Gossip affects the way that I approach other people. My relationship with someone is affected by whether or not I'm someone who wants to know the drama of their life so that I can share the drama of their life. If I want to know your drama so I can share your drama, I will assume you want to know my drama so you can share my drama. So I have got to keep you at arm's length, which means I can't be close to you. I can't have a close relationship with you because I can't let you know the things that if I knew them about you, I would share with others. And so I have to protect myself. And it affects our relationships. Everyone, is, everyone in the world is a potential enemy of ours. Betrayal is always just around the corner, so every relationship is seasoned by that. Whether we process it that way or not, it's affecting the way that we relate to people. And then, as we're not able to have close relationship with people, here's how it enslaves us. Like, I can't have close relationship to end up, to essentially bring you into the unfolding drama of my life, not drama in the negative sense, but in the story sense. And so as such, I just need to be a voyeur to your drama. And the more dramatic your life is, the happier I'll be, or so I think. And so if I can contribute to that drama, I will, because I think it's going to satisfy me to see your life spin out of control. And it enslaves us. You can say the same thing about greed. You can say the same thing about bigotry. You can say the same thing about anger. All these sins that we have, all these sins that we struggle with, they enslave us. And so what, what John is writing to us when he says, I write this to you so that you will not sin, is to remind us that there is freedom from sin. You don't have to sin. This is not your life anymore. Jesus has given you a new life. And so you are able not to sin now because of Jesus. You don't have to live enslaved in these ways. So he calls us to live with freedom, not legalism, 
He's not saying don't sin so that God will love you. Don't sin so you can have a relationship with God. He's saying you have a relationship with God. You have forgiveness. You are free. You don't have to live like this anymore. And so he calls us into confession as we saw last week. Because he's not reminding us. Oh, and the last thing I was going to tell you. What is sin? What is it? It's that cosmic treason. What does it do? It wrecks our lives. What does it require? It requires that somebody die. It requires that satisfaction be made. It requires that things be made right, that justice be executed, as we saw in our catechism. And that means either by us or by a mediator, a redeemer, a substitute. And so we need to remember that our sin requires our death or the death of a substitute who is Jesus. And why does John want us to remember that, that we need a substitute? Is it because God's trying to shame us so that we'll walk around with our heads hanging our tail tucked between our legs in shame because we're such sinners? No, it's because that sin breaks relationship and he wants us to go from the enslavement of sin to the arms of our Father. And that means we call sin, sin. We repent of it and we run to our Father. And so as we think about why we're not supposed to sin, but beyond that, why should we care if we sin? It's because when we are honest about our sin, it is heinous and we know it. And it wrecks everything. And it costs Jesus everything to redeem us. And so the more we understand that and we have that theology of sin, the less it draws our affections and the more Jesus draws our affections. And so we have to remember the gospel as we seek to live lives without sin. Reality, though, we can't, we can't live a life without sin. We're sinners. And so John immediately follows up this call that I write to you this so that you won't sin, but when you do, when you do sin, remember the gospel. And the gospel, as you see it in, the, in verse 1 and 2 here, he says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So remember the gospel so you won't sin, but remember the gospel when you do sin. And what are you supposed to remember? Remember what Jesus did for you. Remember what Jesus does for you. So remembering what Jesus did for us, it says in verse 2, also in the end, I suppose, of verse 1 there as well, it's all tied in together, but we're told that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. What's it mean that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins? It means that he pays the price for our sin, that he satisfies the justice required of our sin. And then on top of that, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, he gives to us his righteousness. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, we call that the great exchange, that for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So that you can think of it this way, that all those sins that we shouldn't have committed, but that we did, and then the sins that we continue to commit because we're still sinners, think of them as, as a sin jacket, a sin jacket. And Jesus says, I'm going to take your jacket from you, and I'm going to give you mine, which is his perfect righteous jacket. He gives that to us so that when the Father looks at us, he says, I see perfect righteousness. I see Jesus Christ, the righteous, when I look at you. And that means when I look at Jesus, I see the porn addict. And when I look at Jesus, I see the gossip who wants to see people fall apart on Facebook. And when I look at Jesus, I see that parent who can't deal with his anger and he lashes out at his children. And when I look at Jesus, I see that bigot 
And when I look at Jesus, I see that glutton. And when I look at Jesus, I see that destroyer of good things, including their body and their relationships. That's what happens in propitiation. And that's why it immediately is followed with Jesus as our advocate. That Jesus has taken those things from us so he can be an advocate for us. I want to take one small aside here. We can get off track sometimes when we see phrases like this where it says that Jesus, for, um, he says in verse 2, he's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but for the sins of the whole world. You know what happens a lot of times as we hear that? And instead of hearing God call us to live holy lives and then to live repentant lives because we can't truly be holy, we think, huh, is everybody saved? That's interesting. I thought that we taught it as our church, as a reformed church, that there's a, you know, a definite number of people who are saved. And here it says that Jesus is saving everyone. I wonder what we should do with that. And then we don't live holy lives and we don't repent. We just try to think about little nuances of theology. Let's not do that. That's missing the point. What I do want you to understand is what, what John is writing to the church here in Asia Minor. He says, do you want to know what is going to bring you comfort? Realize this, that the death of Jesus is sufficient for so much more than you could have ever imagined. The Jesus' Jesus' death for you means that there is no sin and no accumulation of sins that you can ever rack up that Jesus will not forgive because his death is enough. He's not saying that everyone is saved. He is saying, you, followers of Jesus, stop being racked with guilt that you cannot be forgiven and embrace the fact that you are fully forgiven. That's what he's saying. Because he says, who is it that's going to experience the joy, the joy of that propitiation? Those for whom Jesus advocates. Jesus' death is sufficient for all and it's made effective for those for whom he advocates. But it's a word of comfort, not a word of consternation towards the church. So be comforted, church. You are a great sinner, but Jesus is a great savior. And know that his salvation and his forgiveness for you will never be run dry. Does that mean you should just go sin and not try to live a holy life? No, we just talked about that. The amazingness, the immensity of Jesus' sin humbles us and draws our affection, which gives us a desire not to sin. Hang on to that thought as we come to the Lord's table. Let's pray.